If you're someone who's been told you weren't good enough, not big enough, not fast enough, not smart enough, or if you've ever felt paralyzed by a failure you just weren't willing to accept, this is the show for you. Hustle and Motivate is a blueprint built by guests who've overcome obstacles, silenced critics, and overcome adversity by seeing every failure as an opportunity, realizing the true power of the underdog mentality. This is Tyler O'Shea, and you're listening to Hustle and Motivate. When Josh Muskin graduated college, he lost a sense of purpose. As a lifelong athlete, he felt like he didn't have anything left to train for. The competitive nature completely went away. Then, in the fall of 2017, he came across a Facebook post from a friend. It was a picture of him crossing the finish line in Ironman Canada, and it lit a fire under Josh. He decided right then and there he was going to do a triathlon. And for those who don't know, that's a 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike ride, and a marathon all done back to back to back in the same day. The problem was, Josh had no experience doing any of those things. And in our conversation, you'll hear a great story of his encounter with his sales associate when he went to buy his first pair of running shoes. To the average person, a triathlon sounds crazy. And for most, it's just out of the question. So how did Josh prepare himself in 337 days? And how did he handle all the obstacles that popped up along the way? I'll let him tell you in his own words. Here is Josh Muskin. So tell me a little bit about your athletic career and kind of how your love for fitness developed. So I've been an athlete, I'd say almost my whole life. I started playing lacrosse when I was in fifth grade, so however old you are there. And I played a combination of lacrosse, basketball, took up golf at some point all the way through high school and ended up playing lacrosse in college as well. So it was a big part of my life for the first you know, 21 years of it. And pretty much it was anything I could do to get outside and stay active and, and find something to do with friends. So after college, what was that transition like from being a college athlete to the real world? The, the biggest change is just the competitive nature goes away. I mean, you spend your entire life trying to win games, training to win games, competitions, matches, whatever. And then all of a sudden you're just spending a couple of days a week in the gym just to stay fit. And while that's you know, important in the grand scheme of things, it's certainly not the same level of motivation. So I had a really hard time after I graduated college kind of finding a reason to stick around, stay active, uh, other than just trying to keep the bench press numbers up type thing. And probably two years after I graduated college, I'd spent, you know, the, the time at your Globo gyms, just making my way through the movements, but I discovered CrossFit, which pretty quickly became uh, a passionate thing because it kept me in shape, but it also gave me a little bit of that competitive nature back because you were always competing against the clock against someone else in class, whatever that was. And probably about 2011 or 2012, I got into that and started coaching and that became pretty much my main fitness routine all the way through fall of 2017. So in the fall of 2017, you got married, is that correct? Uh, I got married in the spring of 2017. And within a few months of that, we moved out. My wife and I lived downtown in Baltimore at the time. Uh, we were looking to buy out in the county area. So we moved actually into her parents' house in about May. And we're really just on the house hunt uh, from then on. So then how did this whole triathlon idea come about? 
and Iron Man's always been something that I've I've known existed. And for anyone who doesn't know what it is, it's a 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike ride, and a marathon all done back to back in the same day. And while you know it always seemed like something that was really cool, and it'd be like, wow, that'd be really awesome to do. But you probably have to be some sort of superhuman, crazy person in order to do that. So it just lived in that part of my brain pretty much for the whole, you know, however long it was that I knew about it. And in the fall of 2017, a buddy of mine named Matt had posted on either Facebook or Instagram kind of a throwback Thursday type thing of him crossing the finish line in Ironman Canada, what had been a few years prior to that. And so that was my first indication that there are actually normal people out there whom I know and who I can compare myself to from a fitness level that are actually accomplishing something like this. And from there, it just sort of became you know, uh, an obsession very quickly thereafter. Like, what is it? What actually goes into it? How possible is it? What races are near me? Is this something I could even remotely commit to? And uh, I'll say the first step and almost like the initial nail in the coffin of going to end up signing up for it was just trying to see what races were near me and in what time frame. And just at looking at the Ironman schedule, being a lifelong Maryland resident, Ironman Maryland was about 11 months out from when I did that first search. And that just opened up a whole new realm of possibility because it seemed like just enough time maybe to get rolling. So to the average person, I mean, a triathlon, an Ironman, it seems like a very daunting task. Like how, how did you prepare to attack it? What was your, what was your mindset? So part of it was just, do I even physically have the time and capability to do the training? Like training for any one of those individual events by itself takes up, you know, an enormous amount of time. Yeah. And one of the things that I went back to just from an experience standpoint was recently in my, you know, real world career, holding a full-time job with the family and everything was when I was more competitive on the CrossFit side, I was working out in the morning and in the evening for about an hour at a time. And then I would do something relatively active on the weekends, whether it was working out or playing golf or something that took some amount of time. So when I started looking into what a training schedule actually looked like, a lot of it broke down in a similar fashion. It was 60 to 90 minutes in the morning, 60 to 90 minutes in the evening, and then, you know, an hour or a few hours on the weekend. So it wasn't a time frame that I was incredibly unfamiliar with. What I think I grossly underestimated was the length of time at which that schedule would continue. So even when I was doing it for the CrossFit competition side of things, it was maybe a month, maybe two months leading up to one. Whereas this was going to be 11. And so in my head, I'm going, okay, this isn't too bad. I, you know, I usually am up in the morning going to the gym anyway. I get home a few hours from work before my wife does. So I've got, you know, some time before she gets home to kind of get all this stuff knocked out. And I can do most of the training on the weekends early enough that it won't be that big of a deal. And in just looking at what training plans were out there and what other people had done and how other people broke it down, I somewhat naively rationalized it as, Eh, it won't be all that hard to just fit into my existing schedule. So did you just put it out there right away? Like, I'm going to do this. And like, what did your friends and family say about it when they, when they heard about it? So the, uh, <laughs> my wife had been a runner for a long time, uh, half marathons had been considering doing marathons, 10 Ks, five Ks, all of that. And at this point in time in my life, I had never run more than five miles in any consecutive time. And so she had been bugging me for years, like, hey, why don't you run a half with me? Why don't you train with me? I'm like, no, that's crazy. That's way too far. I'm never going to do anything like that. So you can imagine the reaction that she had when I <laughs> I didn't even call her. I sent her an email. <laughs> I was like, hey, uh, thinking about signing up for this, just figured I'd put it out there. 
And I get, are you kidding me? I've been trying to get you to run like 11 feet for three years. And now you're just going to leap all of that and go straight to this. But I mean, other than the initial reaction, she, she was fantastic and extremely supportive the entire time. But the, the reaction from the, you know, call it the public was mixed. Some people were, that's awesome. You can totally do that. Good luck. Uh, I think the best anecdote I have is when I went to the uh, shoe store to buy running shoes because I had, you know, CrossFit shoes and that kind of thing, but nothing for running long distance. And I'm talking to the guy and he's like, well, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm training for an Ironman. He's like, oh, well, that's cool. You know, what marathons have you run before? I'm like, well, none. And he's like, well, what half marathons have you run? I'm like, well, none. And he's like, well, when was the last time you ran, you know, distance? He's like, well, you know, never. And he's like, oh, well, you're probably like a big cyclist. I was like, I haven't bought my bike yet. And he's like, well, did you like swim in college? And I was like, I don't even own goggles. And the guy like basically didn't even say anything to me for the rest of the time we were at the store. <laughs> So it was everything in between, you know, those two reactions that I got back from people. So I understand the whole preparation wasn't wasn't really a smooth ride for you. Tell me about some of the obstacles that came up leading up to race day. Yes, yeah, so some of them were were obstacles in a, a negative fashion. Some of them were were positive, but time consuming. So you know, I signed up for the race in late October of 2017. The race was going to be September of the following year. Um, so you know the between October and March, I did what I considered my pre-training because the training plan I had concocted, I wasn't, I needed to run something like eight or 10 miles in week one. And having never run more than five, I had to train to be good enough to do the training, which seemed ridiculous to say out loud. But the, that initial phase of it was not all that bad. It was okay. I've got the holidays. I've got some time off of work. Things are relatively slow in the winter. So short of just dealing with the weather, that part of training went really well. And almost like exactly according to plan, the, uh, a lot of that started to change in March of, of 18, the year the actual race was, where in March we bought a house, which was exciting, and we then promptly uh, tore it down and began what would ultimately become a nine-month renovation, which required check-ins of the house almost daily, meetings with the contractors, you know, and, and everything that you could possibly... Uh, picking out doorknobs took like four hours one day. So there was... There was quite a bit that even just with the house uh, took some time away and caused some stress, caused me to miss some training sessions that would give me some anxiety of like, okay, if I keep missing them, then maybe I won't be ready. Uh, and otherwise just took some of like the downtime that I had hoped to acquire. And then there was a bunch through the rest of the year as well. When we bought the house, my mom bought a house and moved into town, uh, which was great. And she had moved into her house, uh, had some you know, relatively routine back surgery. And during her recovery from the back surgery, her house flooded. So we were involved with you know, cleaning up the house flood, getting all the water out, making sure her furniture was okay, dealing with insurance. Uh, all of that was in May. My wife had a very close family member to her pass away throughout that time too. So family, the funeral, the service, uh, just kind of hanging out with everybody. And then you know, those were... I'd say relatively abnormal things like those aren't going to happen all that often too often. And they were pretty, uh, they're pretty consolidated. They're condensed to just like a few short time periods, but the house one really is the one that took an incredible amount of time uh, away from just like being able to consistently train and having to have a meeting in the morning or the afternoon. And you put all that together with working 40 to 45 hours a week at like a normal job. And it, my naiveness of like, oh, it won't be that hard to just do it in my normal schedule became, you know, more and more hilarious as time went on. You know, when things pop up like that and distractions and things like that, it's kind of tough for people to stay the course. 
So how did you keep your positive mindset and just keep pushing forward and say, you know, I'm sticking with this, I'm going to do it? So some of it I rationalized in the way of, you know, I average 20 training sessions a week. So if I miss one percentage wise, that's really not that big of a deal. And especially even if I miss two, if it's one from one sport and one from another sport, you know, one swimming, one biking, then that's also like really not that big of a deal because you're talking about hundreds of sessions over the course of these 11 months. So part of it, I was able to rationalize like that where, okay, I'm going to miss this one. I'll treat it as an extra rest day. My body could probably use it. Um, and use it as the excuse to spend more time with my wife, the family, whatever the case was. The, but it wasn't always you know, quite that, quite that simple or quite that easy. Uh, throughout the training, I, I had three races, the third of which being the full Ironman at the end. But in kind of the middle stages, I had uh, an Olympic triathlon, which is essentially like a quarter of the distance. And then uh, about a month after that, I had a half triathlon that was you know, a half marathon, a 56-mile bike ride, and the 1.2-mile swim, exactly half of the full one. And by the time I got to the half one, I, I was done with it. I was over you know, having to say no to everyone all the time. I was you know, completely exhausted. I was falling asleep like with my food in my hand at 7.30 at night most of the times. And I was like, this is completely crazy. Like, I, I think that you know, maybe just accomplishing a half one would be perfectly fine. I'll tell everyone that it was insane. And, and uh, I, I had almost kind of come to reality that that's what I was going to do. And that's where the support system really comes into play because I sat down with uh, my wife and basically told her all this. I was like, I'm you know, exhausted. This is ridiculous. I feel like I'm ignoring you and everyone else. And she was like, this is crazy. You've done all this work to get here. You're going to stop now? Absolutely not. And so she kind of served as a, a sounding board to kind of smack me in the back of the head. And she's like, look at all of this stuff that you have done. And all these people that are following this journey and all these people that have been inspired by, you know, you taking action on this seemingly impossible task, she's like, sure, you could probably quit and that, and that would be cool. And no one would really think twice of it. And they would just be like, yeah, you know, it was hard. Of course, that's you know, no big deal. She's like, but you have a responsibility to yourself to meet the promise that you kept yourself. And you have all these other people who are probably drawing a lot of inspiration from this. Like, do it for them too. And so that, you know, from that moment forward, it, it became a little bit more of like a, uh, kind of tough it up type thing. But every time I felt like I was falling back into that rut of like, Oh my goodness, I'm so tired. You know, I had some of those remarks and a lot of the memories of all the work that I'd put in up to that point. And by then I was kind of on the downward hill, at least from a timing perspective to get to race day. So it was, it was almost a no brainer of like, okay, well, I, I kind of just have to do it. This is life. Now there is a light, there is a light at the end of the tunnel, but it's, it's really not that bad comparative to what, someone else might be going through and you know maybe this brings some positive light to someone who isn't me at the end of it so walk me through race day like were you confident you were going to be able to do it like going into that day and what happened leading up to the race so race day a couple of days before the race i was standing outside with my father-in-law and we were just kind of chit-chatting and he said something to me like well do you think you're going to finish and i laughed and i was god you know short of a completely shattered body like i'm finishing like, there's no way that that's even part of the option. You know, will I meet the the small goals I've set for timing of each thing? Like, I, I don't know. And honestly, it doesn't really matter. Uh, but, you know, I was I was very you know determined and confident in my ability to finish. The biggest challenge leading up to that was about four weeks before race day, I had injured uh, my foot and my opposite hip running on what at the time was like the slowest and smallest of cool down runs. It was like four miles or something. I was a comp or... Uh, 
I was used to doing like 14, 16 at the time. So I was like, all right, well, I'll just go do four, kind of cool down for the week and then go on. And, and during that, I think that my body just said enough. And the bottom of my left foot arch really tightened up. My hip really tightened up. And for the final four weeks of training leading up to the race, I did exactly zero running. Biking was pretty unaffected. Um, swimming was unaffected. So I was like, well, I can at least get to the run. And God forbid it hurts really bad. I'll just walk. I have that option. I don't have that option on the bike. I don't have that option in the water. But I can at least get to the run and I can walk my way to the finish line. But hopefully I can at least jog. So race day itself uh, was pretty surreal in that, you know, a bunch of superlative things happened. Like we got there a few days early because check-in was multiple days ahead of time. So like the anxiety that you normally would get just showing up to race and doing it was prolonged by like 48 hours because you had to show up on Thursday for a Saturday race to check in. Then Friday you checked all your equipment in and then Saturday was the day that you were going to go. But all of that went very smoothly. The support staff and everyone at the race was incredible and the logistics of it were not a concern whatsoever. So race day started somewhere around called like four 30 in the morning, I think four o'clock. So I got up and I did everything exactly as I could possibly think that I had done for every training session and every previous race. I ate the same breakfast, the same amount of time before we were going to leave the hotel, you know, tried to keep it all very familiar. And I had to get everything checked in to the first transition, my bike and my clothes and all of that into the transition by six 30. And we were expected to go out into the water at seven and like clockwork, they blew the gun at seven o'clock. And I think it was four or six people at a time every two or three seconds until the 2000 or so of us were in the water. And the swim, which was the thing I was most nervous about when I first signed up, because I hadn't done it forever. And, you know, drowning is a possibility, uh, instantly became like my favorite portion of the race, like every aspect of it, just kind of came together very perfectly. The water temperature was beautiful. The sun rose uh, right over the water at a view where only the people in the water could really see it and experience it. A lot of the spectators were blocked out by trees and this, that, and the other. So we got like this really peaceful, really unique and beautiful look at just like the landscape around us. And it kind of set the tone for, for the rest of the day. And it was, if the thing that I was most scared about is the thing I'm now enjoying way more than I thought I was going to, like this day is going to be great. And so that, I wanted it to take me about uh, an hour and a half. And I think I was just under that. I was like one, an hour and 25 or 26, something like that. And knowing, you know, how long of a day this was going to be, I pretty much got out of the water, took my sweet old time walking in the transition, changing into the bike, making sure everything was, you know, as perfect as it could be. And probably around 8.30 that morning, hopped on the bike and started what, we were very fortunate remained a 112 mile course. So the night or weeks before the course had flooded on a particular point where they had to remove 12 miles from one of the loops that we were doing. And they very well could have just said, all right, it's going to be a hundred miles. We'll still give you your medal, but it's not really the full 112. Uh, but the race director went out and found like another six mile out and back that we could do before we got to the loops that we were making. So we could keep it 112. So everyone was like really pumped. They got the full course you know, the full distance. Uh, but the bike is really where the day got pretty interesting because it was very long, obviously, and very flat and pretty windy. But for all intents and purposes, it was also pretty uneventful. You went out to uh, a high school and then you did two, I think it was like 36 mile laps around this high school through this wildlife reserve and then made your way back to transition. And that was your 112. And at the end of the first lap coming up on like mile 55 or 60 uh 
we were on a highway that was open to the road and open to cars. And it was one of those highways where it's like one car going in either direction, but there's a pretty wide shoulder, which is where all of us were. But in between the road and the shoulder were those like rivets. You know, if you go off the road and, it, and then you go back on. Yeah. And in between those rivets were um, some flat spots. So the only way to, there was enough room for us to be single file, but if you wanted to pass the biker in front of you, you had to kind of cut through the rivets into the, not into the road, but like onto the white line type area, pass them and then cut back through the rivets to go. And the road was pretty wide open. So if you kind of turned around and looked in any given direction, you could see traffic coming. And there was someone I'd been behind for a while that I decided I was going to scoot ahead of. And so I you know, looked over both shoulders and made sure there wasn't any traffic. And I popped out in between some of the rivets and I started passing this person. And a big truck, like, you know, lifted pickup type thing uh, came up. And so I was like, all right, well, I'm just going to try to stay very still, let them pass me. There's not another oncoming car, so they should give me plenty of room. And more or less, I like stopped pedaling and started just coasting, waiting for them to go by. And instead of just like, you know, going into the other lane and going by like a normal person would, they decided that they were going to pull up like slightly ahead of me. And it was one of those trucks that would blow like really dark black smoke out of the exhaust. Yeah. So it went slightly ahead of me, blasted me with black smoke to the point where I couldn't see a thing and then drove off. And so I'm like, if I hit one of these rivets, my feet are clipped in, I'm going over. Like, there's no chance. And uh, so I just didn't move, locked up, didn't move, stayed very still, finally could see and was fine. By some like miracle, nothing happened. I didn't swerve into anything. I was able to not, a, a not get hit by the car, b not hit the rivets, and c like get back into the shoulder safely. And so my my heart rate at this point is like three thousand beats a minute. I like just almost died, and uh, everyone around me was very nice. Like, oh my god, that guy sucked. Are you okay? Everything good? And I was like, I'm fine. And so I then took that as another sign of like, okay, if I can make it through that, the rest of today is going to be just fine. And what was even more ridiculous than that was about three or four miles later on a completely flat and uninteresting piece of road, I either like stopped paying attention or a gust of wind came or something. And I was just all of a sudden in the grass for no reason whatsoever and heading straight towards a ditch. And it was slippery enough that I couldn't like pull my feet out or get from my arrow bars to my brakes. And so I'm now rationalizing like, I, okay, I have to go down. I have to go down before this ditch and hopefully I have to go down before I somehow like hurt myself. So I just kind of closed my eyes, laid the bike down, feet popped out, bike went flying, crushed into my shoulder and, you know, adrenaline spike, you just kind of pop up and you're standing there and you're like, okay, am I dead? Am I okay? And I like, you know, patted down my whole body and I was like, okay, I think I'm okay. I was like, but is my bike okay? Cause if my bike's broken, like the race is over despite my ability to continue. So again, by another miracle, the only thing that happened was my chain popped off. So I put that back on, checked the brakes, checked the gears, and I was good. And I was shocked. I was good. I went down hard. And uh, that was another one of those people like, oh, my God, are you okay? What happened? I'm like, I don't know what happened. I think I'm just an idiot and went off the road. <laughs> uh, but managed to get back on and, and finish the bike. And so by the time I get back to transition after the bike, I'm thinking, okay, I didn't drown this morning. That was one plus. Uh, I didn't die when I almost got hit by a car and when I couldn't see and I didn't die and nothing bad happened when my bike flew off the road for absolutely no reason and I crashed and was able to just get up and get back on. So I'm like, this is going to be cake. And I'm looking at my watch and I'm ahead of pace of where I had expected to be. So I, I really wanted 
to finish in 12 hours or less, the cutoff being 17, but I had just kind of concocted 12 hours as a goal and really wanted to do that. And I knew that if I ran something like a, a 11 or 12 minute mile, and that's not true, like a nine or 10 minute mile, I could make it. And I had done all my training in a seven and a half minute mile. So I was like, there's a chance that, that I can still do that. So I got out of transition, started running and to my surprise, my uh, wife and friends had orchestrated a bunch of friends from the gym in our hometown to kind of come on the run course and cheer me on, which was uh, much needed after all the, the stress from the bike ride. And I, I pretty much held about an eight and a half or nine minute pace all the way through to about mile 18. And I was at a point where I wasn't cocky, but I was like, wow, I really trained effectively. I did the right strength training. I took the right days off. Like everything's kind of going according to plan, at least physically. Like I feel really good. And I think I'm going to finish in like 11 and a half. It's going to be awesome. And I took maybe a two centimeter step over the 18th mile marker and my body just like turned off. It was like, nope, nope, no more running for you. You're done with that. And uh, it was the proverbial wall that you hear everyone talk about. Yeah. And I had never experienced it or hit it you know, before, but I, Immediately felt like a little dizzy, kind of woozy, standing in the middle of the run course and like in people's way. And I was like, okay, new plan. We're going to walk to the aid station. We're going to drink as much Gatorade as I can find, like eat a banana. And we're just going to walk to the next one and repeat that step until I feel like I can, you know, maybe jog again. So the, every Ironman race has this app that your family and friends can download where it tracks you via this GPS thing that they give you. And it shows them your pace, uh, where you are on the course, like your mile markers, that kind of thing. And so they were all seeing me tick over it, you know, nine minutes, nine and a half minutes, eight and a half minutes kind of mile. And then all of a sudden it's an 18 minute mile and the 19 minute mile. And my wife and mom are like, what, <laughs> what happened to this kid? So I eventually see him. I'm kind of like waving and making jokes, just plodding my way along. And uh, there was a woman on the course, uh, not on, but off the course cheering people on. And all she was saying to anyone, regardless of what they looked like or what they were doing, was the phrase, forward is progress. And that ended up becoming the only couple words in my head for the next few miles. It's like, look, you're not maybe going to break your 12-hour time. You're not going to you qualify for Kona on the first try and have that as a bragging right. You may still have the ability to finish, and all you have to do is somehow put one foot in front of the other one for the next eight miles. And so I just heard that woman's voice as well as family and friends. And I would pass them through uh, what really was mile 18 to about mile 22 or 23. And by that point, probably like 50 liters of Gatorade and 12 bananas later, I kind of felt like I could start jogging again. So I did sort of like a run walk uh, type thing for the last four miles or so. And the cool thing about the course that they had for the run was it was actually only a six mile run course. You just did it four and a half times. So you got to pass a lot of the same people. They got to see you go from running to walking back to running again. And the spectators and the people that I knew, you know, more obviously were in tune to that. And people were rewarding those who looked like they were down and out. And then all of a sudden got, you know, a surge of adrenaline or, or whatever it was. So you kind of were riding a high of, I am actually going to finish. I'm going to beat the time or well, the cutoff time at least. I have all these people, you know, with my back and there's really no danger left between me and there. I just have to get to this end point, turn around and then run into the finish line. And that trip back from the last turnaround point to the finish line 
was probably one of the more like emotional and surreal athletic experiences I had ever had because it almost didn't matter how hard it was anymore. It was like, I can physically see where the end to this 337 day journey is. It's 400 yards in front of me. And what's uh, interesting about the course, and this is true with most Ironman races, is you're running pretty much on the road or some kind of unassuming piece of asphalt for 95% of the race. But the last, say, 200 meters of it is uh, bleachered on either side with people. There are you know, spotlights. Uh, Mike Riley's out there yelling, you are an Ironman to everyone that's crossing the finish line. There's a big carpet down with the MDOT logo. And you sort of run out of like a regular marathon into like a you feel like an NFL player running onto the field with your name being announced type thing. And that 400 yards mentally almost takes longer than the entire four and a half hour run that took place before that. Partly because you're just trying to soak it all in. It's, you know, it's over, I guess, in this weird way, which is both like super exciting and also a little bittersweet because, you know, there's you know not going to be some kind of big milestone left for the day after. But you, you manage to run down this carpet you hear Mike Riley call your name out, tell you you're an Ironman, you get through the finish line, you know, you get your hat, your medal, your picture taken. And the, the very first thing I did is I just walked out of the other end to where all the spectators were, grabbed my wife, gave her a big hug and just started crying into her shoulder because I couldn't believe that. And I truly meant believe that we made it versus just me. It's crazy. So you mentioned how after college, your motivation, you know, kind of took a hit and you felt like, you know, you had nothing to train for. How important would you say it is to have goals in life and to keep setting goals for yourself? Goals are only as important as they are, as you are serious about them. So the, and I've always felt this way, whether it's been a professional goal or a fitness goal or just like a personal development type goal, the goals you hit are the ones you tell other people about so that they even subconsciously can hold you accountable to them. So the, the rational person who would have thought about signing up for an Ironman might have said, well, let me go ride someone else's bike and see if I even like it first. And let me maybe do a small triathlon and see if it's for me. And I knew that if I did it that way, I would likely find some reason to not take the bigger step. So the very first thing I put out to the public was, I signed up for this Ironman. I'm going to figure out how to do that. That's the end goal. And I'm going to back out the plan from there. And that's you know, that's the same whether you're looking to lose weight, whether you're looking to get a promotion. Like If you put it out there into the world that this is where I want to go, not only are you declaring that and you're making it publicly known and it doesn't just live between your ears where you can make up an excuse about it, you will be shocked at the amount of support you get from people who didn't know that was your goal. They're like, oh, you want to do that? Let me help you. I've got all these things that can help you. I know these people. I have these resources. And it just you will be you will be amazed at how many goals that you put out there in the public you will accomplish that's what higher rate than the ones you just kind of think about and ultimately forget that's a really great way to think about it um and what did this journey teach you about just mental toughness the it taught me that it's not inherent and even the people who think they're mentally tough can constantly be tested you know the most tough person in the entire universe who is the most disciplined and the most regimented still wakes up when their alarm goes off and goes, man, this pillow feels really good. I really don't want to get up right now. Mm-hmm. You know, there is no predetermined trait of it and everything is insurmountable if you find a way to do it. And if you break every major challenge into little tiny baby steps, then 
you know, the Iron Man slogan is anything is possible. And it's, you know, you just have to find a way to make it accessible. So one last question before we wrap this up, what would you say is your biggest piece of advice for people out there who are trying to succeed in the face of adversity, you know, facing obstacles like you have? I would say don't focus so much on the big thing, whether it's the big outcome or the big goal chunk that up into the teeniest of little activities to get something where it's super duper easy to get started. And I'll give you a small example. So, you know, Ironman aside, whether it's been working out or CrossFit or lacrosse practice or, or whatever it was for my whole life, you're waking up, people call me a, a morning person, but I, you know, I still don't like to be up before the sun is. I'm just used to it by now. But my thing is I know that I will get up and go to the gym if I first brush my teeth. So like getting up, stretching, getting dressed, getting in a car, driving 20 minutes, going to the gym and working out is like a big thing to think about. There are many pieces of that. But I know that if I take the first step of that, which just put my feet on the floor, go into the bathroom and brush my teeth, then there's basically no point in me going out of bed because I've already brushed my teeth. So I might as well get dressed now. And now I'm dressed. It would be silly to get undressed. So I might as well get in the car, right? And you break it down into those tiny steps. It can be paralyzing to think about the big mountain that you're climbing versus the next step that you need to take. But if you're only thinking about forward is progress it's much easier to make progress that's great how you just tied that in at the end that's going to be that's going to be the quote of this episode nice but josh thanks so much for coming on sharing your story honestly really incredible that you that you've accomplished this um and it's you know so inspiring and i really can't wait to get this out there and for people to hear your story do you want to plug, you know, your website or anything like that before we before we go? Sure. So anyone who is inspired to run an Ironman, the one thing I saw in all the training plans that I looked at out there is just that none of them take into consideration uh, the small strengthening and muscle strengthening activities. They'll all tell you to go run ten miles. They'll all go tell you to you know, swim fifteen hundred meters, but none of them will say these are the things you're probably going to injure, and here are ways that you can get out ahead of those. And here are the types of strength training you should be doing in between all of this to make sure that your body's ready to handle this type of repetitive abuse over the course of the training. So I took everything I learned from this race and I packaged it into both a training plan and an injury prevention plan, both of which are available on the website, just joshmuskin.com. And uh, there's a link in the top for training plans, one-year Ironman training plan. And whether you're looking to do it in a year, two years, or even six months, it'll work for any time frame. But it covers all those bases in a way that I hadn't seen covered anywhere else. So I encourage you to give it a look. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode or if you learned something new, smash that subscribe button and leave us a quick review. Hustle and Motivate is presented by JokerMag.com, the home of the underdog.